3: Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode. This time, this really is a special episode of Quest Love Supreme. We have uh, our Team Supreme with us. This is going to be a, uh, a special theme, kind of uh, an instant two-parter. I will say that our guest today. Uh, Simply not only uh, an accomplished musician, singer, songwriter, uh, but in my opinion, he is hands down one half of one of the most successful duos of all time in the modern rock era. Uh, He helped popularize the burgeoning blue-eyed soul movement of the late 60s and early 70s and into the future from my native town of Philadelphia, Uh, along with his partner, Daryl Hall, uh, who incidentally will have his own episode to himself as well. I want to preface by saying that usually uh, when we have guests on the show, I kind of like the one-on-one thing, just like one artist for Team Supreme. I know it would have been easier to have a group aesthetic, but I feel like you get more in-depth stories when it's one-on-one, and I'm not being... uh, a smart aleck by referencing one of their classic songs,
4: but um, play my game you know, tonight. <laughs> no, exactly, man. Um, is that I when see, that was the NBA? Do you remember a, a certain age when that was the NBA theme song? When that when they had the, one that on promo? one was what? the NBA theme song, you? Oh, You don't remember this? What, yeah, man. Yo, one on one, they there was a promo they cut, and it would be like, you know, I remember you see Bird and Magic, like, you know, playing this motion. And it was one on one. They cut it to one on one. That shit was amazing.
3: They used it for the All Star game. John, where are you right now as we speak? Uh, I'm in Nashville. Okay, and this is your your home home. Well, yeah, Nashville we
5: um, we still have a place out in Colorado where we lived for about 25 years in uh, in the 90s and into the 2000s. But yeah, we've been here now for about almost 15 years, and uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a great place to make music.
6: I see. I
3: see. When so. When were your Philly days over?
5: Oh man, you know, that was a long, long time ago. Um, I think uh, Daryl and I both moved to New York together uh in 1972. Uh and that's when we when we got our Atlantic Records contract. Um, and we made our first album in in New York at Atlantic Records.
4: Was it the one Todd produced?
5: No, no, no. This is Arif Martin. Oh, wow. Okay. Arif, Arif uh, produced our first two albums, an album called Whole Oats, which hardly anybody knows about, and then the album Abandoned Luncheonette, which is kind of the one that I think most people think is our first album, was yeah. actually our second. But Arif Martin produced both those, and uh, we couldn't have been in better hands, uh, one of the greatest producers of all time. And he was, he was. He, dis- he surrounded us with the greatest musicians in New York City, and it was an amazing experience. So, you know...
3: Um... Having you on the show is is special for me, at least, because um even though we had Todd on the show, I feel like I'm going to get way better mid to late 60s Philadelphia music community stories that otherwise my dad wouldn't have been able to tell me about or, <laughs> you know, a lot of cats and that I've always wanted to know these stories about. Um the, the music scene in Philly, especially right before Gamble and Huff started their empire, I've always been curious about that sort of thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, were you
5: born in Philadelphia? No, I was actually born in New York City. My family's from New York, but when I, my father's uh, job was relocated to Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, um, in 19, going to date myself, but hey, you all know I'm old, so don't matter, um, <laughs> uh, 50, 1954. 53 or 54 and so we moved in the whole we moved our family the rest of my our our, the rest of our extended family stayed in the new york area but um no i so essentially even though i was born in new york you know i was such a little kid i grew up in pennsylvania and in the philadelphia area
3: okay and what uh what part of uh philly were you in or pennsylvania
5: well it was a little town called north wales which was near lansdale Um, uh lansdale okay it was about 20 miles north of philadelphia
3: OK, cool. Um,
5: do you know what your first musical memory was? I sure do. I, I absolutely do. <laughs> right after we moved to Pennsylvania, um, there was a place not too far away called Willow Grove Amusement Park. Okay. And uh, now it was an airbase uh, as well. But anyway, uh, at the time, it was an amusement park. And uh, my, my folks took me there and Bill Haley and the Comets were playing in the band show. And I, oh. I don't know if you remember, but Bill Haley was from Camden. Of course. And I uh, so I I was like, I was probably four maybe. And of course, you know, I had I had this musical sensibility at the time, even though I was a little kid. And I remember running down to the stage and it was the band shell. So the stage was only maybe two feet high. And mm-hmm. I remember being this little kid and I ran right down to the band shell. And I remember the the uh, the bass player, the upright bass player, At one point in the show, he rode his bass like a horse. And I thought that was the most amazing things I'd ever seen. And that was actually the first live music I ever heard was Rock Around the Clock and, and, uh, you know, Bill Haley and the Comets. Really? So they were just performing at the... They were were performing at the amusement park, yeah. I was
3: going to say, I think, I believe that I too saw uh, a latter-day Bill Haley perform at then we used to we we had something called the Steel Pier. Oh yeah, um, I played at the Steel Pier. Yeah, the Steel Pier in uh, Atlantic City. It was Atlantic City, right, or Wildwood? Yep, no, it was in
5: Atlantic City. And um, when I was a really little kid, around five or six, I sang at something called Tony Grant's Stars of Tomorrow, which was a kiddie uh, uh, talent show at the Steel Pier. Am I dating myself? I mentioned the word Al Alberts. Were you? Do you remember the Albert showcase at all? Yeah, yeah. It was it was around that time and there was a guy and it was actually before Dick Clark took over Bandstand. And it was um, what was his name? Um there was a different host before Dick Clark, but it was during that period of time, it was the, the mid-50s. And okay. uh so you yeah.
3: you were there for like the 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 era of Philadelphia?
5: Yeah, doop and Jerry Blavitt and all that stuff. Jerry Blavitt was a big hero of mine. Yeah. Oh snap. The uh, the the radio show that he used to do from uh, I think it was from Trenton, where he'd play all B sides and um, man I heard you know songs like Byla by the Versatones and you know and uh, Guided Missiles and you know these songs that were just unbelievable and you know your 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 father man Lee Andrews and the Hearts man I mean you know Tick Tick tock, Tick ticking of the clock hey oh, Lee, wow. Lee gotta call my <laughs> <name>. <laughs>
3: That's Oh, man, that's so dope. So, okay, during that period, I, I'm assuming that you're a teenager. Like, for you, like, when did you know, what was your moment of, or your calling of knowing that you were going to be a musician? Like, how old were you? And was guitar always your weapon I, of choice?
5: I, I was, um, I, I just had, I, I guess I had musical talent. When I was a little, little kid, you know, um, I would sing. I would sing these Little songs. In fact, I have a recording of me singing a little children's nursery song uh, that was done at Coney Island in one of those uh, record booths, you know, where you go mm-hmm. into the booth and you put some money in and you'd sing and a little record would come out. I still have that record. Um, I oh. did that when I was like four or five years old. Um, and then I started playing guitar at seven. I, I originally started on accordion because it, they were the only music teacher in this little town where we lived was an accordion teacher, but I hated it. And uh then I played I started playing guitar at about seven or eight. And I that was it. You play accordion? No.
3: <laughs> i mean if you were to pick it up now would you be yeah able to... i could
5: fumble around on it but but what happened was seriously i my mother just thought my mom said you know you should take some music lessons well the only teacher was an accordion teacher and you know he was doing all that pennsylvania you know polka stuff yeah. and all that kind of stuff and so i mean i hated it i i literally i remember it used to sit in the closet and then um, I think I took two or three lessons and finally on the third lesson, the teacher went, he's not practicing. I said, I hate this. I'm not doing it. And I said, I want to get a guitar. So I got a guitar and I started there. Okay. <laughs> How old were you when you got your guitar?
3: About seven. OK, do you remember the first album that
5: you yourself purchased? I didn't purchase an album at the first, I purchased singles. It was always singles, okay? Well, yeah, your first, yeah, it was the first singles. record that you got. Oh man, um, let's see, uh, Shirley and Lee. Um, well, it was the Everly Brothers, Shirley Lee, right. and uh, well, it's probably an Elvis song too, I'm sure, uh, and a Chuck Berry song, right? Johnny Be Good or um, something like that.
3: As you were a teenager, um, how. What was the, you know, I I guess for a lot of us could say that, you know, I grew up in the era of the Philadelphia sound just being developed, you know, in the early 70s. But of course, I know that a lot of those cats like not only Gamble and Huff, but Bunny Siegler and all those guys were just local Philadelphia Mm -hmm. musicians. So could you talk just about that? That environment, that atmosphere, sort of in the the mid '60s to uh, the early '70s, like what was happening in Philadelphia musically?
5: Well, you know, during when I when I was a teenager living you know living right outside of Philly, you know, I would take the train down on the Reading Railroad into Center City and buy clothes and go to go to the Record Museum on Chestnut Street, buy mm-hmm. records, uh, and what I'd always do on Saturday night was I'd go to the Uptown uh and and i went to the uptown theater almost every saturday night and uh Who would saw, be there? oh i saw the greatest of the greats so uh, give me a typical give me a typical weekend oh well all right you know i saw sam and dave i saw you know the temptations i saw stevie wonder do fingertips when he was like 12 when he first came out all i right. actually saw him play that song uh, and i remember he'd jump on the drum kit and his little kid i mean um, man, there were so many great uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, the Four Tops, um, you know all the all the great Motown. But you know Barbara Mason, uh, you know uh, the Delphonics, um, Stylistics. Uh, well, the Delphonics were first. The Stylistics came a little later. But I mean, I, you know, I was taken with uh, a lot of the great. Uh, I remember this one group from Memphis that I loved, the Mad Lads. Um, oh yeah. Were, yeah. Yeah, the mad lads and uh he just it just went on and on and on. It was to me, it was it was I learned how how a show is supposed to go, what you know what 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 got people off, what made what got people to, to scream and yell and clap. And uh it was just an amazing experience.
3: Okay, so you know, again, I'm a Philadelphian, so I've not heard any shows about the Uptown.
5: What would
3: be the typical format of a show? Like, for instance. If if James Brown is coming to Philadelphia, would he normally play at the Uptown or was he
5: at the time? Yeah, he would. The Uptown Theater. Well, you know, it was part of it was part of the Chitlin circuit. You know, it was the Apollo, the the Howard in in Howard Theater in D.C., uh, the Uptown in Philly. I mean, that was the circuit, you know. So, like, what would the format
3: be like? Would shows? Would you go there at twelve in the afternoon and stay there all day? Or no, like- no, it
5: was e- they were evening shows. They were evening shows, uh, and they would have a house band. They always had a house band, and part of the house band later became a lot of the cats who uh, played with Gamble and Huff became the studio guys for Gamble and Huff. Um, mm-hmm. But. Um, in fact Kenny Gamble might have even been playing piano in the house band. Daryl will will tell you a little bit more about that too because he he was uh he worked with uh with Kenny and and Leon on his first record. But I you know I I I worked with Bobby Martin. Bobby Martin arranged the yeah. first single that I that I did. Um and I didn't even know who he was. We We were looking, I was, uh, it was basically my high school band and we wanted to make a record. We went, we went down to North Broad Street to a place called Virtue Studios. Frank Virtue, who, uh, Mm -hmm. who had had a song called Guitar Boogie Shuffle. That was his claim to fame. It was an instrumental.
3: Okay.
5: He had a small, he had a small studio on North Broad Street and uh, we recorded this track and uh, Frank Virtue, who was the owner and the engineer, he said, man, you guys need some work. He said, I'm going to introduce you to somebody. He gave me Bobby Martin's number and we went down and, and paid him a visit. And he was working out of a small office um, just south of a City Hall on Broad Street. And he arranged it and kind of he kind of you know gave us a little professional, you know, spit and polish and made, made it sound good. Um, so so we were both Daryl and I were kind of involved. With the, the core of the Gamble and Huff people before they became kind of Gamble and Huff. What,
3: what was your group situation before
5: Hall of Notes? Or was yeah. Daryl your Well, I had a I had a band called the Masters and Daryl had a group called the Temptones. Uh Daryl's group was pretty much a four-part an a cappella group, uh very similar to the Temptations. Um that's why they call themselves the Temptones. Really?
6: Yeah. Okay. And
5: my group was more of a um, a, a combo. You know, it was a, funny. I use that word combo. But nobody uses that word anymore, right? <laughs> it was, like, it was uh, you know, guitar, bass, drums. Uh, we had a trumpet and a, a trombone and a saxophone. Uh, I got my sister to sing background. Um, so we were like a self-contained, you know, rhythm section and vocals. And we did all, you know, we did we did what bands did in those days. We played the hits. We played the songs that we heard on the radio. And, um, you know, leaning a lot on uh, on the stuff that came out of Stacks and Volt, too. I I did a lot of that and I did a lot of Curtis Mayfield as well.
3: So for you, though, um, as a teenager, did you. Instantly know that you wanted to be in the music business or was were you just rolling with the wind and see what would happen?
5: (laughs) I don't think I had a choice. I, you know, and I'm not bragging when I say this, but I've never had a job, so um the only thing I've ever done is play music the closest thing I've had to have in a job was teaching guitar lessons when I was in college so uh, that's uh I'm, I'm a blessed and uh, you know a very very grateful person uh because I got to do what I you know what I, I think I was born to do all right so how did you meet uh Daryl well <laughs> it's a it's an unusual story um his, he the Temptones had recorded uh, on, on uh, Bob, uh, Jimmy Bishop's label. Jimmy Bishop, you might know, was, was mm-hmm. the top DJ on WDAS. Yes.
0: their family is legendary in Philly.
5: Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so Daryl uh, was assigned to, and I think it was Arctic Records. Uh, he'll tell you, well, he'll give you all the details on that, on his mm-hmm. side. Um, and this this group I had, as I said, is called The Masters, and we made this track with Bobby Martin and went down to the record museum on chestnut street and said hey we made a record and the guy said let me hear it put it on the turntable said what are you going to do i said well we're looking for we want to put it out he said sign here uh-huh. and threw a piece of paper in front of me and of course i was you know i'd sign i'd sign anything in fact i think that was um i think i did that way too many times in my career but that's another story <laughs> you, don't enough, you don't have enough time for that i list. got yeah i was <laughs> going to say i
3: got to ask you about the the the, yeah. the 70s years
5: but we but we did get we you know so my song was getting played on uh, h-a-t and d-a-s daryl's song was getting played so we were both aware of each other um but i didn't i didn't know him and um we were individually invited to a record hop that Jimmy Bishop was doing out in West Philly at the Delphi ballroom, mm. the Delphi ballroom, right. You know, and so we went out there and we were standing backstage. It was an afternoon teenage thing. Uh, it was the five stair steps, Howard Tate, Howard Tate had a song called look at granny run run. And so Howard Tate five stair steps, me and Daryl's group and my group. And we literally didn't know each other. And, but I had heard his record. He had heard my record. And then a gang fight broke out in the crowd. Wait, what? And so, yeah, so we all went down and we never even got to to perform. We were going to lip sync our record. We went down onto the street level and when we went downstairs, we went, hey, man, I saw you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I said, and we were both going to Temple University and I started seeing him around the the school on on Broad Street. And um Eventually, Wait,
0: but John, excuse me, I have to ask you because this sounds like so regular. This is in, in the seven. No, this is in the sixties, correct?
5: Uh, yeah, this was nineteen. This would have been nineteen sixty-eight. Mm-hmm. So the question is, was it common
0: because Das at the time was still r a, and B station, right? And I'm yeah. gu- I'm guessing yeah. that Mary Mason and them were playing nothing but R and B music. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how common was it that two dudes, two white dudes, two different groups had music on these black radio
5: stations? Well, did you ever hear our music? I mean, yeah, I, I did. <laughs> but I'm just saying to
0: you, in that in the moment, no, though, in the know, moment. Man, we, you
5: know, hey, listen, we we were accepted by the black music community long before we were accepted by the white white rock and roll community. So it was not a surprise to us at all when our records crossed over. At, you know, that was totally seemed normal to me. Um, we just made the music that we made. You know, I mean, if when you grow up in the Philadelphia area and you listen to Philadelphia radio. And you're a kid, you're going to make the music that goes in your head, you know. And so we made the music that that we made. Um, and it, I guess, we must have done something right. So, you know.
3: But for you, but for you, um, growing up in that time period, you weren't at all drawn to uh, the other acts of the era, era like the Dovells or... Uh, you Know, like the Frankie Avalon, Danny, and yeah, t- like,
5: yeah, you're talking about the cameo Parkway era, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah.
5: Well, you see, what happened was when Daryl and I first met, um, two of the guys in my band got drafted into Vietnam, my band fell apart. Daryl's group was kind of falling apart anyway, so I, jo- I joined up with him as a guitar player, backup guitar player. And when both groups fell apart, he and I gravitated toward each other, and we started, uh, we became songwriters at the um. At the schubert schubert building uh oh, the guy, okay. guy named john madera and john madera was from the cameo parkway he was the guy from the Dovells and chubby checker and frankie Abel- okay. and, all that. and uh we we knew that, that 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 music was on its way out and You know, it was really the end of that Cameo Parkway era. So but we, you know, we knew we knew Len Barry and and all those guys, you know, uh, they were all around the whole time. And then at the exact same time that Daryl and I were writing on, the, I think we were on the second floor. Gamble and Huff opened their offices on the fourth floor um, with Tommy Bell and everything. So Mm -hmm. uh, we all kind of started at the same time. Was that's, that
4: building that you were referring to was that kind of like the brill building yeah, yeah. The equivalent? Well, it
5: was philadelphia's version of the brill building it was the gotcha. schubert, theater, schubert theater building okay which is gotcha. still there but they, there were offices in it at the time and uh, yeah so that's how we started and uh you know yeah we knew all those guys um, you know we were involved in in that era but as i said the dovells and chubby checker and those guys were kind of you know they were they were they were last year's model you know they were kind of going out
3: I went to performing arts school uh, for elementary, at least. Even though it went up to high school, but oftentimes uh, we go to that Schubert building to learn like our our musical craft, like take mm-hmm. piano lessons over there and take drum lessons over there on Broad Street. Um, yeah. So you you guys met when a gang fight was breaking out, like yes. In, in your mind, like even like was how typical I mean, I guess I was born way after like the gang wars. But, uh, you know, it, if you're a teenager in the 50s and 60s, like how prevalent was gang activity in Philadelphia?
5: You know, I think in the 60s, the city was much more integrated. Um, there was there wasn't as much violence. I think a lot of the, you know, the black the Black Power movement, Black Pride movement, Mm -hmm. really started more in the 70s. And, you know, by that time, Daryl and I had gone on to New York. But, uh, you know, and and of course, there was, you know, there was racial stuff happening all over the country. But we felt, I always felt very comfortable in Philadelphia, especially in the 60s. Uh, I never had any problems with it. And, you know, if you really look at, uh, if you look at Gamble and Huff at the great, you know, uh, T-S-O-P rhythm section, you know, it was an integrated rhythm section,
3: you know. I see There were
5: black and white players playing, working together in the studio and the head engineer, Joe Tarsia. He was a white, white cat. And, you know, um, Vince Montana, who Mm -hmm. did all the string arrangements, you know, he's a white guy. But so there was it was really it didn't feel that unusual to me at the time. So in your opinion, what year do you feel
3: as though what we know is the sound of Philadelphia? or at least the first draft, it doesn't have to be the less strings like that was Philly international, but you know, like the earlier intruder stage of like gamble records before Philly international before it was a little more raw. Yeah. So for you, like, especially the stuff they did on Atlantic, when do you feel is like the, the actual sound of Philadelphia got established?
5: I think, I think it happened around the same time, uh, Around 1970, I would say. Okay. I I feel like you know, like you said, the Little Sonny and the Intruders, the Delphonics, those records, they were street records. They were do they were essentially doo wop records with with musical backing, you know. Um, and I, and it wasn't really until later on when Tommy Bell, I think, was responsible for adding a, a real high level of musical sophistication to what was coming out of the of Gamble and Huff's place. You know, if you listen to Tommy Bell and um, I mean, he, his chord changes are so unbelievable and so unique and so complicated, really, if you, if you think about it. And, you know, in, in, a, in a way, and I had a conversation with, with Burt Bacharach about this. Tommy Bell was to me is like the Black Burt Bacharach. You know, I mean, you listen to Burt Bacharach songs and the way he voiced his chords and you listen to Tommy Bell and the way he voiced his chords. I think they were listening to each other because um, I th- think there's a lot of similarity there.
3: Could you talk about the the period that led up to the actual record deal with Atlantic?
5: Yeah. Well, it goes back to the Schubert building. We were, we were working with this guy, John Madera, and um, we were just songwriters. We were kind of staff songwriters. Mm-hmm. And um, we would, you know, we, we'd write some songs and he'd try to pitch them for us and nothing was really happening. And he had done a deal with chapel music, In New York City, I guess he sold his catalog. And uh, when he sold his catalog, we kind of came along with the deal because we were like his new writers. And so he was kind of bragging on us as, as the new writers that he was bringing along with the sale of his publishing catalog. Uh-huh. so we went to new york city and we auditioned for chap music basically um you know he kind of it was you know he he would show us off you know and me and daryl would play our little songs you know that we had written and chapel music seemed interested but then nothing would ever happen so then we'd go to new york and we'd do a showcase so he and just daryl and i just the two of us he'd play piano i'd play guitar and it was like a kind of a a little bit kind of a folky r b duo kind of thing uh-huh. and. Everybody always loved what we did, but we never we never got any traction. We'd go back to Philly, and, and we'd find out that – and the, always the, the thing he'd always say to us is, yeah, they like you, but they passed. They passed. We couldn't figure out why. Why did they like us, but nobody ever offered us a deal. Right. And we, we later found out that he was trying to cut deals on the side that were just so, so bad that nobody wanted to touch us because it was just – you know, I don't like to get into the music business, the, the dark, seamy side of the music business a little bit. but That's a different that's what podcast. Was that's what's going on.
3: No, it's education, though. <laughs> no, yeah, in, it. yeah, man. In Philly, was it as, was the, the, what I will say, the Morris Levy of it all, uh, was that kind of a, a presence in Philadelphia as well? Absolutely. It was all over the
5: place. It was everywhere.
3: So when do you feel as though... What I, you know, for those who are listening to the podcast, um, I'm sort of speaking on a kind of the 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 wise guy mafioso era of the music business, where we thought so.
0: We, thought so. we was following oh, you. We was
3: following you. A lo- well, yeah, I know we're following because we know each I, other. But I was speaking for the people. I was, I, I'm. Yeah. okay. Oh, you're the yes, you represent the people. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, you know, eventually, well, some. It's like that episode of I don't know if you remember The Sopranos when uh, when uh, uh, you know Tony's guys were trying to shake down a Starbucks (laughs) and the person was trying to like explain (laughs) to them like we're not a local we don't have any money this isn't a local Mm -hmm. mom and pop thing like this is this is a a a chain and they sort of felt like dinosaurs it was like oh we can't shake down
0: corporations right I got this so but
3: for you when did that
5: sort of Did that era ever end? I think it did. And I think it kind of went out in the 70s. And by that time, Daryl and I were so frustrated because we couldn't get anything going. And every, you know, it was very frustrating to to have people like like what you did, but yet not respond to you. And we 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 got to the point where we couldn't deal with it anymore. And we we kind of put our pulled our money together. We you know, we didn't have anything at the time. I mean, you know, if I, if I could buy a cheesesteak, you know, that was a big deal for me.
6: Um, you know,
5: so we put we pulled our money together when we flew to California and neither of us had ever been to California before. And we didn't know that you had to have a car when you got there. Uh, we we just we just wow. showed up. This guy from Chapel Music picked us up at the airport and he let us stay at his house. And he said, I'm going to get you, you know, I'm going to let you guys play for a few people and see what happens. We just thought maybe California would give us a chance. And sure enough, we played for this guy at his house, literally in his living room. And he was friends with Ahmed Erdogan at Atlantic Records. Very good friends. They were, he was actually, he he wasn't really a musician. He was an art dealer. But uh, Ahmed Erdogan was a big art collector. And that's, I guess that was their thing. So we played at this guy's living room and this guy said, he started. It was funny, we played a couple songs and he started laughing. And we said, what's up? What's the deal? He goes, are you guys for real? And we're you? like, yeah. And he's like, Well, wh- why are you playing in my living room? He right. goes, how come you don't have a record contract? I said, well, we can't get one. We got them this guy <laughs> in, in Philly who you know, can't help us and we don't know what to do. I mean, it was kind of crazy. And he said, I'm going to call Amit. He says, you guys go back to Atlantic and you audition for them. And we went, okay. And so we flew back to Philly and then we went took the train to to New York and we walked into a room with uh, with uh, Jerry Greenberg, who was the president of Atlantic at the time Mm -hmm. and um, and Arif Martin. And we played our songs just like we did every time we played and Arif stood up at the end and said, I want to produce these guys. That was it. Wow. Record deal. All
0: right, y'all.
1: Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com
2: slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of You have the knowledge, you have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu.
3: What was it like working with him? Because I've become familiar with the reef because of. I guess my love for the average white band records. That's when I started seeing his name on a lot of the credits. Um, but at the time, were you excited? Were you familiar with his track record with like Aretha? Yeah, and
5: I was. I was very, very familiar with Aretha. Uh, I thought the Aretha stuff, and in particular, his arrangements were so spectacular and so beautiful—string mm-hmm. arrangements—and and just his just his musical sensibility. And you know he he was an interesting guy because he was he was Turkish, um, and he had this deep deep love for American jazz and American music. Um, what was great about Arif was he thought like a pure musician. He didn't care about styles and genres and what was hip or what was happening at the moment. He just cared about what would serve the song the best. He he thought like a classical like a classical uh, arranger. He, mm-hmm. you know, if it needed an oboe and a, and a viola, he would do an oboe and a viola. He had no, there was no, um, it was no kind of thing where, hey, well, so-and-so is doing this. This is the sound it's on the radio. So let's do something like that. It, it had nothing to do with that. And he was, he, I learned so much. In fact, I think every recording session I've ever done since that time, I pretty much tried to conduct the way he did. He just, he just put the best people possible in the room the best players that he thought was appropriate for the music in the room. And he just guided them and let them do what they did. But he just kind of guided them. He never asserted himself and made it seem like he was running the show. He was always there and he was always made sure that he got exactly what he wanted. But he never was out there telling, oh, you do this and you do this. And you no. So it was really um, it was really an education to be with him. And to see what he, you know, when we were doing our uh, the second album with him, he was producing the Divine Miss M with mm. Bette Midler. So we'd leave the studio and Bette Midler uh, would come in. And then he was doing the John Prine album, the first John Prine album, which was an unbelievable album. So he was doing singer-songwriters. He was doing R&B. He did, he did Solomon Burke. Uh, oh, you man. Know, he, did, he did Hubert Laws, the jazz flout. Yeah, flouters, yeah. So... I mean, he was all over the map because he was so good as a as a just as a musician. He didn't care what it was; it was just music to him, pure music. And I think that's what I learned from him.
3: So, okay, so back then, I know that the um, the, the sort of I mean, the technology uh, is different than the '80s than it was the '70s. But um, when you're working on an album. Like, is is he having is it one on one time with him or is it for him like a day job where it's like, okay, I got a refill on Tuesday and Donny Hathaway on Wednesday? Yeah. All the notes. I'll squeeze you guys in for three hours. So it's not like he's spending.
5: No, he didn't squeeze us in. He he didn't squeeze us in. We had full day sessions or full night sessions, uh, mostly day sessions. Uh, And he usually did two sessions a day. So, yes, we would be in there for uh, maybe 11 to five or something like that. And he would take a dinner break and maybe he would have another session that evening. Um, But we worked. I mean, we know we worked. We we were we were right there. I mean, right in the the thick of it.
3: And it didn't feel like cut and paste to you, like in terms of. You know, I mean, can I spend more time with him no, to not figure out a song no. idea?
5: It, we felt we felt that he he cared as much for us as he did for any of the other artists he was working with. And, you know, okay. he put us, we, we didn't have a band at the time. It was just Daryl and I. So our rhythm section for that second album was Bernard Purdy, Gordon Edwards, Richard T, um, Hugh McCracken,
6: mm-hmm.
3: Dave
5: Spinoza. Um, Gordon I mean, Edwards. Yeah, these are the kind of players we were with. And so for the first time, Daryl and I got to play with these, you know, I mean, we had Joe Farrell, Joe, uh, the saxophone solo on She's Gone is Joe Farrell. Yeah.
3: Oh, wow.
5: You know, we had we had jazz musicians and R&B musicians and classical musicians. And, you know, it it was just an amazing thing to be. He just he would hear our songs and then he would think, I know who's right for this. And he would make the call. We didn't even know who we'd we'd be walking into that, that day but we knew that whoever we walked into that day was going to be just right for the music we were making. Okay,
3: I have a question about Abandoned Luncheonette. Yeah. Um, Specifically, She's Gone. Yep. Yeah, okay, so I've gone through this story a lot of times uh, in the pandemic where it's something about keys modulating that scare the living bejesus out of me. And you know, I mean, be be honest. Like you guys were definitely going for drama with the the end buildup of she's gone. But whose idea was it to just do those five modulations? Like, is this gonna be the key? No, is this gonna be the key? the key? Is this gonna, is be, this be, gonna be the key? <laughs> is this gonna be the key? Oh, in the beginning? Like, <laughs> is that what you're talking no, about? No, the very end of She's Gone. There's like, just just are you know, like in a soap opera where you have that dun, 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 sort yeah. of thing? Mm-hmm. so there's a part of the or, song or,
4: or like the end of uh I'm, I'm trying for something for our for our listeners understand love on top by beyonce like <laughs> yeah, the, the end where it's going up yeah it's like 14 times or whatever yeah
3: right or golden lady by stevie but the thing is to me it's i always knew the boogeyman was waiting for me
7: at the end of every <laughs> mirror you gotta get over this at some point man i mean Stop, just- Steve.
5: <laughs> Listen, no man. come on I'll, t- I'll tell you what i you know i believe that that was that was a reef's idea to do that um and it 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 was uh it's it's kind of a cheap shot to modulate to to kind of you know to okay i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna make this song more exciting because i'm gonna modulate it up a half step oh you my know? god i'm gonna take it up but I'll tell you what, Daryl and I have modulated four times in that song. We never modulated again the rest of our career.
6: So
5: (laughs) That's that's all all I got to say about that. Okay. Um,
3: But there's also, okay. um, What's even stranger about that song is one of the very first musical videos I've ever seen was she's gone. One of the strangest things. I, I believe where I see she's going,
5: I think Jerry Blabbe had I knew, a... I I know where you saw it. You saw it on you saw it on Philadelphia TV on a dance show on a teenage show dancing air. Yes, hair. I did. Oh, we got a story. I got a story. I got a story for you on that one. So Go the away. thing
3: is, is that I remember I was I was five years old. I believe that you guys actually did have a devil either a (laughs) woman was a devil so whatever the lyrics were i pay the devil to replace Mm -hmm, it i just remember you guys sitting on a a, you guys are sitting on a couch and i just remember a a devil was running around in this video (laughs) which the thing is is that you know for, Uh, for our listeners that don't know music videos was a promotion tool so in case you couldn't go overseas and tour um they could at least have something to play on those top of the pop shows or shindig or any of those shows that you weren't able to get to you know if you weren't big enough to fly to europe so you would make performance videos but soon afterwards uh they started putting some concepts in there like Frank Zappa do some concept videos so th- I definitely remember this being a concept video but for you guys did you because you you used music videos to your advantage. Do you feel the time like this
5: was advantageous to the, the song in your career? Well, you have to remember, this was over 10 years before MTV. Yes. Um, yeah. What happened? And I'll tell you what happened. Um, she's gone began to to get some popularity was on the charts. Um, they wanted us to to lip sync our song at a show. In, in New Jersey, uh, at at the at the Steel Pier, it was called Ed Edhurst Summertime at the Pier. It yes. was a teenage dance show, right on. Yes. I believe it was like Saturday afternoon. Saturday afternoon, right?
6: Yes, so, yes.
5: So Dar- so, so Daryl and I were thinking about it, and we said, "Wait a minute." I said, "We can't go down to the Steel Pier and lip sync she 'She's Gone' while a bunch of kids start to dance to it." So that's to where we said. So we said to them, "Can we just come to the studio and just?" We record the song, you know, videotape the song, and then you can show that. They didn't know what we were going to do, though. So let's just let's just remember it was 1972. Yes. Whatever we were doing at the time, there was uh, let's put it this way. There was some mind altering substance involved. There you go. Okay. Okay. so we decided that we were going to do this weird thing where we brought literally the furniture from our apartment. And my sister, who is a student at Temple University, she, she was going to direct it. The girl who walks by in the video is Sarah, Daryl's girlfriend from Sarah Smile. Right. And, and the devil was some kid from Long Island who was our road manager. When we rented him a devil devil suit, I I rented a penguin suit with flippers, and Daryl was wearing a bathrobe. So I would encourage anyone out there who has not oh seen God. this video to it's go on, on YouTube. YouTube. It is on YouTube. Watch it. Oh, wow.
3: It, it never once hit. That's so weird. Like, I have a list of childhood memories that not once that I think, like, yo, I got to, I totally forgot to see, was it ever on YouTube?
5: It is it's on YouTube. YouTube. It's absolutely I can't it. believe this. You can watch it. So we Oh, had, wow. So we did this, and they got so angry. They got so pissed off at us because they thought we were mocking them. Um, and I guess, in a way we were. But anyway, so they told us, they got mad. they called uh, they called Atlantic Records and said, these guys will never get played on Philadelphia radio. Who do they think they are? Well the, oh, it was it was bad. And we had a backpedal to all this stuff with with the record company. And um, we were just having a crazy time because we were that's where we were at. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's how that happened.
3: My you know, my dad had a lot of records in the house. Shortly thereafter, almost immediately as that song's going to the charts, I know that Tavares right. also covered "She's yes. Gone." So there was and this is almost the same similar situation with the uh, the Fifth Dimension and Dinah Ross like releasing "Love Hangover" at the same time, like yeah. Tavares and Hall of Notes are kind of fighting
5: for airplay time for she's gone at the time. Were you guys cool? Not, with that? Qu- not. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, but not quite. We had okay. released, we had released, she's gone and went into the top 40, but it didn't right. go much higher than that. Then to, after that, Tavares recorded and went to number one, it was a number one R and B record. Right. And, okay, and, that's what I do. The Tavares version, right. and people said, people, people said, "Oh man, can you believe it's the number one R&B record?" And Daryl and I are like, "Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me." um And <laughs> then we released it again after Tavares when Sarah Smile was out, and it went into the. It was, I would think, it went to number two. Man, okay, but you guys, you guys were fine and cool with that. Them, you know. Hey, I, no, I was happy about. It. Even Lou Rawls
3: cut that song. That's right. The next record with War Babies, um, could you
5: talk about working with Todd Todd Rundgren on that record? Yeah, well, we had moved to New York City. And so the War Babies record was a direct uh, reaction to leaving Philadelphia and being in New York and experiencing New York and the difference between New York and Philadelphia. New York was so big, much bigger and more faster and chaotic. And, you know, and, and we we really, you know even though the abandoned luncheonette was a great record and it's still one of my favorites, it didn't really, it wasn't very successful. So at the time it, the record business was completely different than it is now. You know, I mean, you know how it is now. If you, if you, if you don't have a hit uh, on your first record, you, you're not making a second record.
4: Basically. Yeah, You want and done.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Well, in those days, record companies signed you because they actually believed that you could have a career that maybe, you know, you could evolve and develop creatively. So but we had no we had no reason to 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 do the same type of record because it wasn't successful. So we said, well, let's just try something different. And you know, Todd had having moved from Philly to New York, we figured he'd have something you know he could relate to it. Um, to be honest with you, uh, we do, we were just trying to be experimental. We were trying to push the boundaries and see how far we could go. Um, I it's it's not one of my favorite records. Um, I didn't feel comfortable in that style. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a lot more, I think, I think the thing about Todd and and his style of production is that, you know, if you, if you want Todd Rundgren, you get Todd Rundgren, um, you know, there's no denying you you, what you're going to get. And so, um, you know, for me personally, not one of my favorites, but I think what it did was it, it gave us this ability to be more kind of in the, in that experimental rock genre. And then going forward, we, we combined, we combined the Philly R&B, the folky stuff that we were doing and that war mm-hmm. babies thing all together. And that's what enabled us to find a sound of our own. So
3: for your, um, the next record, I, I mentioned this at the rock and Hall of fame, uh, the, uh, the, the, the <laughs> Hall of Notes record.
5: Say. Yeah. I know what you're going to say.
3: Whose, whose idea was it for the cover design to do the, because you know, the androgynous thing was coming into play with like right. what, what yeah. Bowie was doing. And I think like, I think the Stones did it with Go Ted Suit. Like for you, what was the the marketing idea of that cover? And it was
5: that's exactly what it was. It was it was a, t- a moment in time. Uh, that's what was happening in New York City in Greenwich Village at the time. Um, you know, it was Rick Derringer, Todd Rundgren, Mick Jagger, Bowie, and we were you know we caught up in that whole down uh, scene that was happening in Philly in in New York rather, and um, we met this guy named Pierre Laroche who was the stylist for all those records for every one of those records that you mentioned. And I remember we had dinner with him and he said, I remember what he said. He said, I will immortalize you. That was his, <laughs> his role. And that he did. And you know what? It's the only, the only album cover anyone ever asked us about, and it has nothing to do with the music inside. But See, I would it, ask
3: about H2O. but <laughs> Okay. Of course the, the, the breakout single from that is Sarah smile. At this time, are you guys coining the term blue-eyed soul? Like how?
5: You know, you know, we never really liked that that phrase. You know, to me, to be honest with you, I just think, uh, you know, it. it's to me, it's kind of offensive. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, it, it connotates white guys trying to sound like black guys. Okay. And I don't think that's what we do. I think we sound like the way we sound. And if we've got soul, then good. And I'm and I hope it comes through. Uh, and you know, to me, and I, and I don't I don't want to get too philosophical about this, but to me, soul is not is doesn't belong to any race, creed, nationality. I mean, you know, I hear music, I hear soulful music and all sorts of music around the world. I mean, you know, there's Irish music that's very soulful. There's American Indian music is is unbelievably soulful. So I think soul is a thing that touches you. It moves you emotionally. And that's what soul is. If you hear music that that makes you move, whether it's physically move or makes your your, your emotions move, to me, that's what soul is. So um, at least I got it out on the table. I got <laughs>
7: yeah, it's very similar to what Bonnie Raitt said um,
5: yeah, exactly. on,
7: on our show as well with regards to the blues and her experience. Uh, Growing up listening to that stuff.
4: I think the thing is, like, you know, I think um from when I listen to artists, you know, if it was white artists, I think more so than anything, you just want to see those artists give credit to what they grew up on. You know what I'm saying? I don't think it's, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, that's what I, I kind of always saw with you guys and just with the white artists that kind of fell into that, you know, that what you call blue eyed soul, like a Michael McDonald or whatever, you know, they always bigged up the stuff that they grew up on. And I think the only time it really becomes an issue is when, you know, a white artist is like, oh, no, this is just all me. And it's like, no, the fuck it ain't. You know, yeah. what I mean, that's that's where the problem comes in. But I agree. I mean, it's, you can find the elements of soul in all music. It's a feeling more yeah, I mean, so than it is just a, a genre or
5: whatever. You're, you're absolutely right. It's we you know, we are all products of what came before us. You know, we, we, there's not one person on this planet who just comes out of the womb and is a total unique original. Uh, Maybe there are a few. What we do and what, who we are is, is, is about our, it's it's our, it's in our DNA. It's in our upbringing. It's in the place we live. It's in the experiences that we experience. And that's who we are. And, you know, and I've, I've always made a point to, uh, to be very clear that, you know, to point to my roots and the music that, that made me who I am. And I, I, I honor it and I try to, and I'm very respectful for it. And I always try to, um, to make sure that, you know, people understand that, hey, this is where it all comes from. Thanks.
0: All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
2: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
3: I think on this record, well, one, you guys are producing it. And two, um, you have, you have the monsters on here. So I, I could assume that Ed Green is drumming on Sarah Smile, um, I, I but,
5: believe I believe it was Ed Green on Sarah Song. We, we had three out three drummers on that record.
3: Well, based on them drum fills, I, I hope that it, you know Ed, Ed Green of of Barry White fame and whatnot. And also on bass, uh Leland
5: With Lee
3: Clark, uh, Yes. Yes.
5: Yes, and we had Scotty Edwards as well um, on bass. And here's Steve right back. Yeah. <laughs> <So, laughs> that's that's right.
7: Yeah, I
3: love so, uh, when you're using when you're using these uh These monster musicians, like, can you just, because I will also say that a consistent level, especially once you get to the Faces album, that you guys capture and consistent. You know, I know that musicians were, quote unquote, dime a dozen in the 70s and whatnot. But how do you, is it just a matter of whoever's available or is there a particular... Musician that you're looking for to give you a particular sound, like how do you grab the musician that you want, and how do you know who's the best guy to
5: use? You know, musicians through their reputation, obviously. You know, um but the the Silver album, that one with Sarah Smile on it, that was the first album that we made in, in in California. We made that in L.A. and we made that in L.A. <laughs> for a reason. Um, we had we had a guy named Christopher Bond who was actually from Philadelphia, who was in our band very briefly. And he went to L.A. to try to make his mark as a session player and a producer. And after the Todd Rundgren album, when that didn't connect and, you know, we realized that wasn't the right direction either. Mm -hmm. He said, you guys should come to L.A. He goes, I've got great musicians. I've got the best studios come out here and we should make the record out here. And so we took a leap of faith. We just said, hey, man, why not? And we went to we went to California. And, you know, in, in the mid 70s in California, they did have the best recording studios in the country it was all the best recording technologies the best engineers and chris found uh you know he found he he was friends with ed green and and he brought in lee scar and you know we had jeff percaro we had who was it who else on drums jim keltner yeah um we had all, all sorts of amazing musicians and they were all available because we were in la so it was definitely um it was definitely an uh, a new experience to be in LA and record with those guys. And yeah, we got great results. Um, and we made three albums in
3: LA. So th- there was, was there truth to the rumor that you guys were initially going to do something for the Rocky soundtrack because of the Philly connection at one point for the first movie? <laughs> yeah, there
5: was a song called grounds for separation. Um, grounds for separation was on, um, on that album. And, uh Sylvester Stallone uh he used that song as temp music in the in the in the movie when they were editing okay and you know how it you know how it is with a film if you start using temp music you kind of you kind of get get married to it and you can't think it democratic
1: right Demo-itis. Demo-itis. that's the movie game
5: <clears throat> i i you know i have no idea why it didn't happen but it was a big mistake I was all part of your you know, management you don't, team then don't, yeah. uh,
3: Oh. oh, ixnay on the matole. Wow. Oh, no, I- <laughs> <It's all right.
4: laughs>
5: <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, all right. I don't. Know, I, you know what? I don't know who. I don't know who thought that was wasn't a good idea. But whoever thought it wasn't a good idea, wasn't too sharp. So right. Let's put it that right. way. Let's nah, leave it at that. Actually, right. ask Daryl about that. Ask Daryl about that. He'll have a good. I will good ask Daryl about that. Good.
3: Um. At, okay. Well. Okay. For what I what I'm allowed to ask about him. Was were you his first clients? Yes. Okay, okay, so you had him when he was like a 20-year-old, like out of college or something.
5: Well, let's if you can if we can wind back a little bit to that story I told you about when we were going from Philly to New York Yeah, auditioning at chapel music.
4: Uh-huh.
5: Mm-hmm. On one of those trips when we went and played our, our new songs for chapel music when we were songwriters, this young kid Tommy Matola was in the room. He was a song plugger for chapel music at the time. Okay. And after one of those sessions, he came up to us and said, well, you know, what do you guys, what's, what's your deal? And we're like, we don't have a deal, man. We got nothing going on. We're, 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 you know, we're playing our songs for people. People seem to like them, but nothing's happening. He goes, let me see if I can help you. And that's how he became our manager. Uh, he basically, he had never managed anybody in his life. And, and, he was just a, he was same age as us and uh you know we were in our 20s early 20s and uh he said i think i can help you and he started to help us and when we we wanted to break out of, of our deal with uh, that guy in philly we uh, he he kind of helped us with that and that's how he became our manager for
3: for the uh the bigger the both of us records that has a uh, um, rich girl on yeah, it, yeah can i ask was it was your label ever do they ever ask you guys to slightly change the lyric to get on radio? I'm radio? Okay, I'm only asking this, and I hate bringing up the story. Um, when you're young and you live with strict parents, um, <laughs> it's not like it comes with a, a manual on words that you're allowed to say and not allowed to say. It's just that you know it's a curse word if you get hit and you said the word and didn't know it was a <laughs> curse word. So, All Of course, right. I'm reading the song lyrics, and I kept singing, "It's a bitch, girl,"
5: yep. and I sweat. Sm-
6: oh wow! <laughs> Why would
5: you do yeah. in- <laughs> Okay, okay, let's let's think about that. Let's think about that in the context <laughs> of the music that's out there today.
3: No, 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 dude, I'm not blaming y'all for it.
5: <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. I'm laughing about it because right. it seems so silly to me. It's like crazy. And you, okay, so you know what they, you know what, the, you know what happened with that. It was okay. Here, here's here's I <laughs> messed up the music businesses. Okay, it was okay for the album cut, but the single we had to change it for the single. So they 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 made Daryl go in the studio and sing "Bridge." He had to put an "R" in the word. It's a bridge, oh, girl. If you listen to if you listen to the, yeah. listen to the single, it's "Bridge." You can barely tell, but it's there. And so just by doing that, that was okay. It was so stupid. I guess it ass. So wait, wow.
0: the intention was bitch? I'm confused. Wait, the intention was bitch?
3: Yeah, the lyric was bitch, but you couldn't say that. You couldn't on say it on the radio in those all days. All
0: my life. I did not. All my life. All my life. what do you think it was? She's a rich girl.
3: Yeah, but yeah. Then, then he goes back and says, yeah. it's a bitch, girl. He does do that. He...
0: You know what? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm not the only wait, one having
3: this moment. That's all right. Uh, are you familiar with the Felipe Nguyen, uh one-of-a-kind love affair story?
6: Mm-hmm.
3: No, I'm not familiar with the story, but he's one of my favorite singers
5: of all time. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's definitely out there. Uh, he did a rogue move. I always wanted to know when, how did he get kicked out the group? And this, they can get her kicked out the group, but this sort of put the group on high alert that he could be rogue. So the next time you listen to One of a Kind Love Affair, towards the end, I I had gotten a 45 of this maybe uh, back in 1997, and I saw that it said edited version and at first no, 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 it said uncensored version, censored version and in my mind, I'm like wait, this is the Spinner's, not NWA like (laughs) (laughs) What could be censored on the spinners thing? And I happened to ask somebody who used to work at Atlantic and they told me the story that basically Felipe in the very last rounds of ad libs, one of a kind love yep. affair is, he says, you know, you want to love her. You just got to fuck her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he got away with it. I think they got away with it for like eleven weeks, and then suddenly, the FCC started. You know, like someone caught it on the radio, and then like He used to
0: love catching that kind
3: of well, shit. And he and he didn't deny it at all. So and I, yeah. well,
5: I like him even more now. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> you, you know, the one, right? right. So could you could you talk about in your opinion because you guys won't basically have kind of hit your stride at least with the hits until four years later so that period in between like with uh the no goodbyes record yeah with with beauty on backstreet and uh the um the lifetime record like oh and also the um i think ecstatic for those five records what was generally happening with you guys and in terms of where can, you wanted to yeah. go and yeah, um... I, I
5: can t- I can tell you exactly what's happening. So we went out to LA to do that silver album, and it was successful with Sarah Smile. Then she then they released she's gone. That was successful. Then Rich Girl came on the next one. That was successful. So I was so we were on a roll and we were playing bigger, you know bigger uh, arenas and things like that. Then came the Beauty on a Backstreet album, and what happened was, and I can I can tell this story because, you know, God, God bless some Chris Bond had passed away a few years ago. Um he, he was a brilliant musician and producer, but he was a very, very damaged individual. And as we got more successful, he began to lose it and he began to overindulge in uh, substance abuse. So when we went out to do the third album, which ended up being Beauty on a Backstreet, he was very, very erratic. Um, in fact, we had to cancel sessions because he passed out, it was cracked his head on the on the control, you know, on the on the console and got um, to be taken to the hospital. It was a, it was a bad scene. And so we barely made it through the album. And that album to me is the darkest thing we've ever done. And I don't really care for it. And I never listened to that record ever. So what happened was because we had no hits, and that record wasn't very successful, uh, we kind of, you know, kind of fell off the radar a little bit. And Daryl and I, I think one of the smartest things we ever did during that period of time was we said, you know, we've been recording all our albums with studio musicians and it's been great. But what we really need is a great live band and we need a live band that's so good that we can take that same band into the studio. And at the time, right at that time, Elton John was just finishing up Yellow Brick Road and we made friends with the Elton John band, which was Caleb Quay. Kenny Passarelli and Roger Pope and we basically adopted them and all of a sudden we had this kick-ass live band that we could take into the studio and we did this uh, album called uh, along the red ledge right and we had a lot of guests on that album and we put in David Foster who had never produced a, a record before we were his first artist, David Foster, ever produced.
3: Oh, this is the year before After the Love is Gone. So, okay, so he worked oh, wait, with you guys well, first.
5: And, and I got to tell you about it, After the Love is Gone, too, because when we were getting ready to do the album with David Foster, he said, I got a song for you guys.
3: Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Man. Oh, <laughs> man.
5: And he said, he said here, check the, he had written it with Dave Graydon. Yes. And, and so he sat... Me and Daryl were sitting in his living room and he played it on the piano. He can't sing for shit, but he's an amazing piano player. And he was singing and he was doing After the Love is Gone. And we're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, y'all would
3: have turned it up.
5: I, I I know, I know. the bad oh, um, Vocals, it. dude. Fonte, think about you can see. I mean, if you hear, if you think about it now, you can hear us do it. Oh, oh, I totally hear you. You know, many many mm-hmm. uh, major mistakes in our career. We. Oh my God! Did
0: what, what did you think about when you heard the the Earth winning? Oh, I was just curious.
5: And he, he went and did it with Earth, Wind and Fire.
4: When you when you heard Earth, Wind and Fire version, was that like did did you get it then in a way that maybe you didn't get when when David had trying
5: to sing it? i got it the first
3: time but i'm more <laughs> <laughs> it's also fonte it's also a little weird because even philip himself says that that song for him was sort of like yeah it was a success but you know you also gotta understand that charles stephanie just died and they yeah. i'm not saying they got back it's weird to think of all in all as the earthworm and fire gets by off the skin of their teeth but just the fact that Maurice was able to make that record without Charles' input. His
4: creative, yeah, He's kind of creative And still do some yeah.
3: mind-blowing Sort of wanted he had that one record in him and then, you know, called him for David to help him. But I, I remember a lot of fans kind of feeling the same way about After the Love Is Gone as maybe, like, about Cool New
4: Gang's Pop uh, period, celebration like, or like yeah, Joanna yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah,
3: it's like that. But now that I think about it, man, it had all had Hall of notes done after the love is gone. I think that that would have, yeah. with the right musicianship, that probably could have just ousted Bobby Caldwell just but as far as love. the the definitive <laughs> slow jam, like yeah, the, the, the blue eyes. Like
6: that
5: thing. Yeah, we we would have crushed it. <laughs> yeah,
3: Damn.
0: but it speaks to David Foster because the song was banging either way.
5: Hey, listen, Dave, David Foster wrote a great song. He's an incredibly talented, amazing mm-hmm. guy. Um, but he wasn't right for us as a producer. But at least you know we did get to work with him for a couple albums. And, and then you mentioned ecstatic. We mm-hmm. brought David to New York um, to to record that record because we didn't want to be in LA anymore. And he, in the middle of that record, he said, what am I doing here? You guys are making this record yourself. You don't need me. And that was wow. the last time we ever used an outside producer.
3: It's almost like you guys became a brand new group with the Voices record.
5: <laughs> another another career misstep. Um, we, really? You know, <laughs> we, uh, we we were finally back in New York where we wanted to be, and we had a band that could that we we finally achieved what we we knew we needed to do. We had developed a live band that could play live and kick ass, and we could take them in the studio. And that and but we were also producing ourselves. There was no one else except us and the engineer. And so we did it. We we made the kind of record we wanted to make. And I think it was just a very um, inspiring time. Great musicians, great songs, and it was just—it was—it it was happening. We were—we were glad to be out of L.A., and um, I think that we had a, a New York had a big energy in 1980, you know, and we kind of tapped into it.
3: Speaking speaking of your band, you know, by by that point, um, at least that to me was like the last era of musicianship where not only did you care about the artist, but you also cared for their band too and you you guys had a really charismatic band um long-time fans will instantly recognize that um you know the great g.e smith was your guitar player long before he was uh
4: Uh, snl
3: yeah the snl musical director of like the 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 80s and whatnot
5: yeah
3: um also t tom uh t-bone walk one of the greatest of all time dude do you know how crushed I was? So, Steve, do you remember they were coming on yeah. uh, the the night show to perform, mm-hmm. and they had to cancel because uh, we had booked you in 2010, and Tom had passed. Yep the uh, the morning the morning of. Yes. But could you talk about that band? But just your whole, um, just your whole uh, uh, crew by that
5: point, like. Is 80 when you sort of solidified that band? Yeah, that's when it started. That's when that band gelled right after the Voices album. And that band uh, here again was finally the, the you know, we were, we still were in that search for that ultimate band that could play live and be in the studio. And that that's when we found them. Uh, GE joined us first and he brought in Mickey Curry on drums. Right. Uh, Mickey was a friend of his who had played in bar bands with him and Mickey had never played in a professional band other, other, you know, before us. Um, when we had GE and Mickey, and it's kind of a funny story. We were looking for a bass player mm-hmm. and we, we did some auditions at SIR. I don't know if you got time for this, but it's I a totally Let's go hundred okay. we were looking, we, we had GE and Mickey and we really needed, we knew we needed a really great bass player and we had done some auditions and most of the guys were not, not up to, up to it. And we had come down to two guys and there was this one kid from long Island. He was tall and skinny. He had a great haircut. He was a good looking guy. And then there was Tom Wolk, who had not been named T-bone yet. He was just Tom walk. Right. And he was kind of a, you know, he kind of wore flannel shirts and a cap and he lived in Austin, New York and, you know, They were both really good players. Right. Mm-hmm. We didn't you know, we didn't play with them a lot, but we we kind of tested them out. So it came down to these two guys. Right. So we finally had the finals. We had the we're going to have the audition between these two bass players. Mm-hmm. So the, the the guy comes in, the kid from Long Island, the good looking guy comes in. He was kind of cocky. He felt like he had the gig. And, you know, we played a couple songs and he was good. You know, so after <laughs> and T-Bone came in. And went, no, no, I'm sorry. Hold on. T Bone came in first and he played. He was amazing. And he left. And then the other kid came in and he played. And after he was done, he felt like he really was in the band. And he, I remember he turned around to us and he said, he actually turned around to Daryl. And we were sitting Mm. around and he said, Hey, Daryl, when I'm in the band, I think I should sing Kiss on my list. (laughs) And and I remember Daryl turned around and said, Hey, John, go get the bald guy. (laughs) Oh, Wow. wow. Are you serious? Yep. Yeah. Daryl said, "Let's get the ball guy." That's awesome. <laughs> and that's, wow. how T- that's how we got. That's how we got T Bone. Man, it was the best decision we ever made. Ever. He talked himself out of gig. Wow. <laughs> he didn't. He, was he serious or just? Joking? I don't know whether he was serious or not. But if he wasn't serious, he was an asshole. So it doesn't matter.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Word on voices. The original voice, uh, the original version of Every Time You Go Away was on that record. Yeah. Um, Was that ever released as a single
5: off that record? Was that just an album cut? It was it was the last track on the B side. And, you know, back in the days when you're making vinyl records, the last track on the B side was was either the the art record that you couldn't fit anywhere else or it was like the throwaway record. Right. And didn't think of it way if you listen to our version, it sounds like a stone Stax Volt Stam and Dave track. I mean, it is it's real authentic and real raw. And you know, to give Paul Young credit, um, those guys heard it and they turned it into a great pop song. But but if you listen to our version, our version is I think is great too, but it's not a single, it's not a pop single.
3: Long time uh, QLS head should also know that uh Piano Palladino is playing bass on the Paul Young version of uh, Every Time You Go Away.
0: All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb.
2: at Edu.
3: Why were there two album covers for Voices?
5: Because because we were we were trying to control everything. We didn't want the record company to tell us what to do. So we made our own album covers, black and white, and we didn't know what to do. So we took a picture of Daryl and a picture of me and we tore them in half and we pasted it together and we sent it to the record company we said, put this on the cover. And they, they didn't want to do it, but they did it because they had to, because uh, we made them do it and what happened was uh the record got released we were really popular in japan at the time right and they we were going to do the japanese tour and the japanese record company said we hate this record album cover and so they made their <laughs> own album cover without telling us oh, man. Mm-hmm. so when we got to japan there was that album cover with me with the the pink pants on right and, yeah and the japanese People they had that picture. It was a publicity picture that they had, and they just stuck it on the album. They didn't even tell us, and we said, "Hey, what?" So we get to Japan, and we have a new we have a new album cover, and so that's so. Then America re released the album with that Japanese cover. That's crazy because wow. I like the black and white version better. Well, it's because you have good taste.
3: With the transition of the eighties, were you guys thinking about you know the the burgeoning new wave movement? Or the stuff that like Gary Newman was doing with drum machine technology and whatnot. Like how how is modern technology coming into to play with the band? Uh starting with that? Because I, I think it was notable to not just use the drum machine as a click track, um, but to actually make it part of the song.
5: We were we were using something called a rolling compu rhythm. It was a a little wooden a little wooden box little square box it had four presets rock one rock two bossa nova and samba and <laughs> you had a rotary knob that would you could adjust the tempo by a rotary knob but it didn't tell you how what the tempo was it was just you just had a feel we would use that for feel for to just when we were tra- you know kind of going over the track and trying to get the right te- tempo and the right feel um What happened with Kiss on My List, Kiss on My List was never intended to be on the record. That was a song that Daryl wrote with uh, Jana Allen, who was Sarah's sister, who was a young songwriter. um, And she came up with the idea. Daryl helped her with it. And she wanted to make a record. So it was at the end of one of our sessions for Voices. And we were all done for the day. And Daryl said, let me me go and just make this demo for Jan." uh because you know i promised her I'd, I'd you know lay it down for her so he went in on the piano with the with the compy rhythm mm-hmm. and hit rock one you know and you know and he just played the song so we didn't want to waste tape so we recorded it at 15 ips instead of 30 ips because okay. it, was, it was a throwaway it was a demo mm-hmm. so after it was done it was just the piano and the compu rhythm and we played it. Uh, I guess Daryl played it. Might have played it for Tommy Mottola or someone. And, and everybody flipped out and said, "That's amazing! You guys got to cut this." So we didn't really want to recut it because it sounded really good the way it was It was on 15 IPS. So the song has this kind of warbly thickness to it. Yes, it does. And and all we did was add add a couple instruments to it: bass, guitar, you know, some little pads. And that's the way we put it out. So it, it really, it was supposed to be a demo. And that's why we, we kept a copy rhythm on it just like that.
3: I'll, I always wanted to know, um, I think on my 45, on my 45 of uh, KISS on my list, I believe the B-side was Africa. Was yeah. that you guys doing a sort of a, your Bo Diddley homage there or...
5: Yeah, that was my that was my song that I wrote for um, my girlfriend at the time, who was um, a model working around the world. And she was she was in Africa. And I just thought it was kind of funny. My baby went (laughs) to Africa. Yeah. yeah, Like, I I don't know. It It was a Bo Diddley kind of feel.
3: Yeah. Africa was just one of those songs where I constantly had it on rotation on my 45. You know, if you put the arm over to the right, then you could have the song repeat over and over and over again. (laughs) <laughs> and I just always remembered, like, the summer of 1980. Like, that was always this, the... I just always kept it on the B side. For the Private Eyes record, all right, I, I got to cut to the chase, man. I, You know, and and due to the lasting power of it to this day, you know, DJ gigs are not complete for half of America's DJs. <laughs> right. If I can't go for that,
5: yeah.
3: it's not played... Could you please uh, give us the story of how that song came to be? Because it's such, it's such a the way that it's just stripped down and sounds sounds so revolutionary that
5: the session was over. Everyone had gone. Uh, me, Daryl, and the engineer were in the studio, and we were at Electric Lady, and. Um, Darrell walked out into the studio with the electric piano and here again, the rolling Compu rhythm, which always mm-hmm. sat on his piano so we could basically work through tracks. And he had an idea, I guess he had that idea in his head, but he never said anything to me or anybody. It was just maybe was something that was just going around in his head. And he, he hit rock one and whatever tempo was on it, I don't know, whatever that was set at, and he just started playing his left hand. He just started playing. And then he started playing. And then he said, me, hey, John, get your guitar. And I got the guitar. And he actually suggested to me to play this line. He goes, play play a muted, like a, like a funk line. And I started going. And all of a sudden, it just like went like this. You know, it was like, okay, there's, this doesn't need anything. This is like it right here. It's the mm-hmm. left hand of the keyboard, the guitar thing. And that was it. Now on that song, the only thing that's on that song is, is the keyboard, the guitar, sax solo, and one synthesizer thing. Right. And, and then background vocals. That's the whole song.
3: Was Whose idea was it to make it sound as stripped down? Because it, to me, that drum machine is such a radical sound to it. I mean, there's two versions of it. The the 12-inch the has a more brighter drum mix to it, but yeah. the, the album cut version, I, I can't describe. To me, it was almost like an improved version of the, the drums that Sly was
4: trying Very to achieve so. yeah. on uh-huh. There's a Rhythm ball. Ace. A yeah, the Rhythm Ace yeah. joint, yeah. yeah.
5: That 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 album, you know, there's riot going on. That had that same quality to it. That you said it was stripped down and raw, and it was dry. There was this, just this thing. I mean, sometimes when when you know you don't have to have a lot if it's the right combination of you know of of tonalities. When you get the right tonalities and they're not fighting each other, they all have their place. You know, they got they're all in the right place sonically. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. And I think we were we were smart enough to realize that it was the groove was 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 major. And it was just that was it. That's all you
3: needed. No one told you guys like oh, this group might be undercooked a little bit like it needs something else or.
5: Nobody, nobody told us anything because we never let anyone in the <laughs> studio. Uh, I love it. Just the engineer, the <laughs> band. Yep. Yeah. No, no, no record company people.
7: It's the great engineers from Electric Lady. I don't know what's what's going on. Must be something in the water over there. I have a question um, for you, John. <laughs> um, was Private Eyes the first album that you did go to Electric Lady for? Because I know you went there for a few. Records.
5: Yeah, I think we did Voices at the Hit Factory. Um, I'm pretty okay. sure Voices was done at the Hit Factory, uh, and then we started Private Eyes at the Hit Factory. And Daryl and I both lived in the Village. We both lived very very close to Eighth Street, and. Um, we just wanted to walk to studio. That's that's why we picked Electric Lady. We wanted to be able to walk. I wanted to be able to walk to the studio and walk to Balducci's. And that was that was wow. the, that was the criteria for. What else do
3: you need for for me at least? My era of Electric Lady. There's this you know revered thing for for Hendrix. Like wow, it's the house of Hendrix. But back then, was it like that, or was it just like hey, there's a studio on Eighth Street let's just go there and make a record,
5: yeah, i yeah, I mean sure Or it was, did it have a vibe to it it was yeah, it had a vibe, there was no doubt it, it was it had a vibe and Eddie Kramer used to used to pop in and out uh um, wow. you know and and you know you walk in there and there was that big mural that went down the hallway mm-hmm. you know, psychedelic mural but but the reality was it was on a street and we could walk to it, so
3: okay <laughs> it it almost took ten years for you to reach the promise of what you were i guess initially planning on doing back in the the early atlantic days but as a duo like how are you two getting along with this newfound success
5: we've always gotten along really well we um we we really leave each other alone um you know back in the early days you know we were together constantly and traveling constantly always you know everything was shared but as we got older and as we got more successful you know we lived separate lives with separate families you know, and um, but, but we, you know, we met as teenagers, so it's almost like a brotherhood, you know, it's almost, it's like, a, it's a family thing, you know, we don't yeah. have to even talk, uh, we can be apart for long periods of time, and we get together and it's like time stops, it's, it's a very unusual thing, um, and I, I'm, it's amazing, to be honest with you, that we, we're still able to work together, you know, we, we do our own thing, we're, we do separate projects, uh, you know i'm gonna I'm doing a tour uh, next week, actually, an acoustic tour with a a guitar player friend of mine here in Nashville. Um, and Daryl's gonna do a tour. he's doing uh, some a new solo album tour mm-hmm. uh, and then we'll come back and play together, you know, probably over the summer, so you know i
3: I know that I for one am very tired of anytime someone sees me alone in public nine times out of ten, they're gonna ask me. Where's the rest of the guys at? Or where's the band at? <laughs> yeah, I'm almost certain you get asked more oh, yeah. every day. Yeah.
5: Where's so, how you know they 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 think that they think that we just yeah, we're just well, you know, our company's called Two-Headed Monster. So that gives you an idea what, you know, what what, what it's all about. I me- I remember one time I was sitting in a dressing room and it wasn't long ago, sitting in a dressing room and I was by myself in the dressing room and one of these security guys at the venue Stuck his head in his dressing and goes, and he looked at me, and there was nobody else in the room. And he said, "Which one of you guys is hauling oats?"
2: <laughs> <laughs> I said, "I said, I guess,
5: wow. I guess that's me. I don't know."
3: All right. So for H two O, first of all, while on the streak, what is the, what is the pressure like for you? Like, kind of going into private it's like damn we got a top you know voices and with h2o it's like ah, oh, man we had like four top 10 singles with the privatized record like are you feeling the pressure at the time or is it still like we still have to prove ourselves or do you now feel like by this point at least like you've arrived
5: I think well, we definitely felt like we arrived. We felt like we were we were doing the right thing. You know, we, we had to achieve what we wanted to achieve. We 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 were producing ourselves. We had the band that we wanted that we could take live and be in the studio. And we thought that that's we were there. We and things were rolling. You know, the the band was amazing. Uh, the vibe was amazing. Mm-hmm. We were writing really great songs and. I don't think that there was no exterior pressure. We didn't have pressure from the record company. I mean, it might have been there, but we never let, that, let it get to us. We just, we just wanted to make a great record, and we just went in there and did it. I've heard rumors of it, but
3: can you tell me whether or not, I don't know if it happened at the We Are the World sessions or whatever. Was it true to the rumor that Michael Jackson actually told you guys that Billy Jean was inspired by the DNA of I, can't go, for I that. can't go for that
5: He He didn't say that to me. He may have said that to Daryl. Um, he did say he came backstage with his brothers uh, when we were playing in California and L.A. And he said, he said, I can't go for that. It's my favorite song to dance to. He goes, I dance. He goes, I work out all my dance routines to that groove. So wow. just that and that alone kind of tells you. That if he liked it that much he must have said to himself man i'm going to write something that sounds like that
4: yeah what about so with that uh, with that said man eater and part time lover ooh. ooh what are your thoughts on ooh. on that
5: you know man eater i wrote the chorus of man eater as a reggae song cuz i had come back from jamaica and oh it, wow. I hear wow. Now that you say it, now yeah, I yeah. it. Wow. that yeah. makes sense. Oh I wrote I wrote it as a I wrote it as a reggae song. It was like it was like it was like um you know and so I wrote it it's like like a, a like
4: a lover's rock kind of thing. I like that.
5: Yeah, and and I and I and I played it for Daryl, and he was like, "Man, he goes, I love this." He goes, he goes, I don't know, man. He goes, I don't know if a reggae groove is right for Hall and Oates. And I said, "Well, what do you got?" And he he went gong gong
6: gong gong. I said,
5: "Okay." And I mean, I, at least I was smart enough to listen to him.
0: All right, y'all. You know what season it is? Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
1: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
2: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu. you,
3: oh, you know a question I always wanted to know? All right. It, I, I, this is more of an arrangement question. Sometimes there, there will be some songs that get released and in your mind in retrospect in your mind you think that the course happens a lot great example is uh uh fonte the um the rock master scott and the dynamic threes the roof is on fire Mm -hmm. like of course that powerful but it only gets said once in the song and that's like
7: that's all say it. Right. Yeah, you gotta you, <laughs> right. gotta you
3: gotta wait five minutes before he even gets to that part. And for me, a song like one on one, mm-hmm. I always swore to God that the whole back and forth between you and Daryl, get tonight. What a, what a, what a I get tonight? Like that only happens once, yet in my mind, <laughs> that's that's a course that just goes mm. on and on, which is so tricky. Who who and that's a very intricate uh that Rangers, song has yeah. a lot of intricate background parts. Like <laughs> whose idea was it to I'm surprised that it was a hit because you guys didn't take the easy route and just saying the easy part of the course, but there were other sub courses in um, there.
5: We really pride ourselves on those background arrangements. And that's a Philly thing. I mean, that's really, that's coming from that doo background vocal thing. Um, and if you listen to some of our songs, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, but a lot of our songs, the hook is actually the background part. Yes. It's, it's very unusual. People don't realize that. But for the hook, like for Out of Touch, that's just a giant background vocal. And the lead is bouncing off the backgrounds. Um, we do that a lot. Um, and that's a thing, you know. You want to know how I know that that's true? Maybe
3: five years ago, I got the master to uh, I Can't Go For That. Mm-hmm. And just as an experiment, I took the vocals and put them over where the backgrounds should be. And I took the backgrounds and put them where the vocals oh, were.
7: Yeah. like <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> to this no yeah yeah to this day I mean I've been playing it in my d j sets to see if one person notices that Daryl's singing over the chorus music and the chorus is over the, not one person has noticed it yet and that's all the only version I play
5: that's cool I didn't realize that's that i'd like i would like to hear that how did you guys
3: get family man from uh mike oldfield
5: that was a that was just a, an accident um we were making the record, and um, one of our roadies, our keyboard tech, who was uh, helping us with keyboards, he came in one day and he said, Hey, man, he, he he was a big Mike Oldfield fan. And he said, I heard this new Mike Oldfield record. And he goes, And there's a vocal on it, because Mike Oldfield was predominantly an instrumental,
6: uh-huh. instrumental.
5: And he said, There's this cool song with this girl singing this vocal, this vocal tune. And he said, you guys got to hear it. And we just played it for fun in the studio. And we went, wow, we should cut that. And we did. We just cut it. I also remember
3: you did two versions of that video. One version was like extremely long. Like <laughs> it was almost like, and again, the early days of MTV where they just needed a lot of content.
5: Yeah, they I
3: definitely it. remember, yes, it cut like 10 versions of Leave It.
7: But there was two versions of <laughs> Shadow what? I'm just I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing. Yes.
3: Yes. 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 Well, Golly and cream of they did like CC ten like,
7: remixes of not, of owner of a lonely heart too. Like there's hundred mixes yeah, of that. Tre-
3: Trevor wasn't messing around. Trevor Horn. Yeah, but I remember you guys did two versions of a, an extended version of of family man which
7: is like eight nine minutes long and
5: yeah we were always doing club mixes you know on some of those records
7: did you have anything to do with that you and daryl or did somebody else just take um, the, you the, the know, track? We,
5: well the first club mix that we had success with was for um and so with jelly bean bonitas right By- yeah. Did that one. And then we then the, the really extreme stuff that we did later on on the on the Big Bamboo Mountain done by Arthur Baker. And an
3: important summit meeting of, of a record. You were part of USA for Africa's We Are the World. What was what was that experience like?
5: Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson. They were smart because they knew that it was the American Music Awards were going on in L.A. And back in those days, you know, you only had two things. You had the American Music Awards and the Grammys. They were Mm -hmm. really it was not a million different award shows like there is today. Um, And so they knew that everybody kind of who was anybody in pop music was going to be in L.A. for American Music Awards because pretty much everybody went. So they just said uh, they, they sent invitations to everybody. Uh, to select people to come to the studio at A and M uh, after the awards, and the, the the invitation said no managers, no agents, no hangers-on, just come, just come. And
2: mm-hmm. there was a
5: green room out in the lobby for all the people, you know, the, all the other folks, and um, just the artists were allowed in. And that was the that was brilliant because all the artists let their hair down. You know, there was no hangers-on and agents and managers trying to, you know. Mm-hmm. Control anybody, and everybody just got real. Everybody got real, and I, you know, I remember. I they had little names on on the these little steps where we all stood for the chorus, and uh, Mm -hmm. I had I had Ray Charles was right in front of me off my left shoulder, and Bob Dylan was right behind me on my right shoulder, and (laughs) um, I was just looking. I was you know you know through the years I I think I've tried to be more very aware of. certain moments when, um, when I realized that maybe this is something that, you know, couldn't might never happen again. And I remember very distinctly being very aware of what was happening, where I was, and what was going on. And I thought to myself, this is a very unique thing. And I don't know if you can see it or not, but I'll show it to you.
3: Oh, everyone signed the. Uh,
5: I got everybody uh, sign it. I think this is the only copy that exists. Wow. wow! That's, that's crazy. And, man. I mean, and I mean everybody.
3: So we're looking at the sheet music and everyone's signature from yeah. We Are the World. That's right. That's amazing. Wow. And
5: for once, for once, I had the presence of mind to go around and get everybody. <laughs> to sign
0: it. Oh yeah, everybody else. I even
5: is got, mad I they got Steve, I even got Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder signed this thing. So wow! <laughs> look,
0: I'm like, where would that look? Okay,
5: that's what's <laughs> up. How long was the process for you? Um, it was a couple hours, but you know, all we did was we just sang the chorus. Um, we said, we, we all sang the chorus in unison and then we said, okay, everybody just throw a harmony part on. And, you know, of course you had a room full of great singers. So everybody just picked a part, sang a third, third of, you know, octaves, whatever it was. And, uh, and then everybody broke down. and Then they did all the uh, the uh, soloist solo stuff. Um,
3: so, oh, so the backgrounds were done first, and then, yeah, then we one the went home. First, and...
5: Yeah, and oh. uh, it, it didn't it didn't take long. It really didn't. Um, there was a couple little snafus, a couple little issues where, uh, you know, you know, you put a bunch of a a list uh, talent in the same room, and somebody's going to think they're going to start producing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was a couple little things where I won't mention any names, but Stevie. Uh,
3: yeah man we had we had Huey lewis on the show mm-hmm. did
5: he tell you the same
3: story uh no 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 i don't no i i know told
5: another story.
4: Yeah, uh, what's, what's I, story yeah what's what's your story
5: you know stevie made some suggestions that he he thought would be a good idea and it kind of it kind of derailed the whole thing because they were trying to get a lot done, you know, and uh, and finally, you know, Quincy Jones just came out from behind the console, you know, the, behind the, the glass, and he just once Quincy came out, it was like, and I remember, I think, I think Ray Charles said something like, "Hey, man," I think he said, as I recall, he said, hey, "It is this Lionel Michael song. Let's just do it the way they want," and that was. And that was it. Once wow. once he said that, everything kind of no, got. Stevie's right. trying to get that published. Listen, no. It's
3: all love.
0: <laughs> Imagine Stevie versus Ray. I just love it. <laughs> I know they were friends, funny. and I know it's all in fun. Right. But it sounds hilarious.
3: Wait, There's- you guys were you guys also on the Sun City record as well?
5: Uh, yeah, I was. Mm-hmm.
3: I don't know. Was if that, was was that, that recording thing the same way, or was it just like?
5: No, that was all <laughs> the individual stuff. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, it was a group thing, but it was small groups. I think Stephen brought different people together. And it was all done in New York in a small studio uh, in the city.
3: You know, you guys are basically the gold standard. Like for you, was it, were there any regrets of that period in that rise of of being at the top of your game of having like number one singles, number one albums? Has Has there been something that you haven't achieved or wish that you could have redone or something?
5: I think that people perhaps don't realize that when you have this mega success like that in the pop world, um, that the, the biggest thing that you lose is is time. You lose time, and you lose uh, you lose yourself because there's so much demands on your time for um, obviously to make the music, to to promote the music, to tour, to play live, to write new songs. It just never seemed to end, really. Um, and I think when we got it right after, you know, we did we did three things that were really big. We did We Are the World, we did li- live, time, uh, live Aid in Philadelphia right. at Veterans Stadium,
6: mm-hmm. and we
5: headlined that with you know with Jagger and Tina Turner and uh, and uh, Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, and then we did we and we had done the Apollo Theater show, right? Uh, and we also had Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin. Once we had done those three things, I think Daryl and I actually looked at each other and said, what, what more could we possibly do? What else?
4: Do? Right. <laughs> we had, we've
5: had more success than we could have ever dreamed of. We had, as you said, number one records, toured of the world, you know, on the top of the pop charts. And I think, we, I think we were smart. I think we realized that there was only one way to go from there, and that was down. Um, mm-hmm. Because I don't think you can sustain that sort of success. I think it's very difficult. Very few people can sustain that sort of success for a lengthy period of time. And I think what we did was we stepped away. And maybe it wasn't the smartest thing to do from a business point of view, commercially. Of course it wasn't. Uh, but it was a smart thing to do from for psychic. Life. You know, for life. From yeah, the heart man. The heart how soul, you know?
3: how um, difficult or challenging was it to pull off the Kendrick and Ruffin uh, project because, you know, I, I've read a lot of autobiographies of various Temptation members and, you know, they don't look too fondly of that, uh, that reunion album that came out in 1981. So I don't know, I, I would assume that, you know, when they're doing this album with you in 1984-85, that the sort of Temptations proposed seven-member reunion thing went a bust, and they both went their separate ways to do their separate projects, but for you, what was it like? You know, I know that you two were big Temptations fans, but at at the time, you know, was it uh, rose-colored glasses like, this
1: is exciting,
3: or maybe uh, i don't we, know
5: we um we were asked to open, reopen the apollo after the apollo had been closed for a bit for to, to be uh, renovated
3: Renovated. and it was
5: a big you know we daryl and i felt like it was a big honor it was a you know it was a charity event it was in new york city obviously and uh, it was a big honor to be asked you know to to open, reopen the apollo and we wanted to do something special and so what we wanted to do was we wanted to go back to the some of the music that kind of brought me and daryl together back in the 60s and that was our mutual love for the temptations and eddie you know eddie was eddie's was a sweetheart eddie um was playing in holiday inns in alabama mm-hmm. uh,
6: david
5: david was <laughs> david was a david very, was david we know he was a very challenging challenging individual <laughs> we um, know and but we managed to corral them together and we told them flat out they said look Here's what we want to do. We want to try to replicate the thing that we remember as teenagers. When you guys were at your peak, we want to wear the suits. We want to do the steps. We want to do the whole thing. And we're on the stage at the Apollo. We want to, we want to try to recapture for that moment. And it was really kind of in a way, I mean, not in a way. It was really, it was really me and Daryl wanting to, to have that experience of performing with our teenage idols Mm -hmm. on the stage and kind of having this and to be honest with you it was it was one of the most amazing things i've ever done because it was like time had stopped and instead of me being in my bedroom trying to do the temptation steps and singing those songs i was on the stage at the apollo doing it with them and they were so cool about it and they wanted to do it so authentically if you if you watch the steps they are exactly the same choreography and right. it, it was just one of those things. And honest to God, I, 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 it was a psychedelic moment. And, and by, by that, I don't mean taking drugs. What I mean is, mm-hmm. is that I felt like I was watching myself. I felt like yeah. I, had, out of
4: body experience. I had
5: gone out of my body and I was watching myself do that. And it was really something that I I don't think I could ever, you know, well, I can't really describe it any other way than that. But it was just something that was just very, very. And that's when me and Daryl decided to step away after that. It was after that show, in the reception after the show, we were, were, all the people were coming around and everybody was saying, you know, how great it was and all this. And I remember me and Daryl sitting down together and we said, you know what, probably a good time for us to just stop. Wow. Yeah. Quitting while you're ahead Cause, is cause not, know, yeah. for us. It was a full circle. We had we had, mm. we had met because of the temptations in a sense. And now we were we, we had done that. And it really felt like we had completed this thing in our in our life, you know.
0: Mm, was there something in your mind you wanted to do after, after the circle had completed? Because it seems like a whole era. So now yeah, I,
5: I wanted I wanted to live. I wanted to, um, <laughs> I wanted to do all the things that I had never done. Um, you have to remember, I, I was on the road from 1972 until 1986, and I never, ever stopped. Not one time. There was wow. no breaks in that whole time. Had you so, made a list? <laughs> and, yeah, my list was was uh, li- live in a house. In one place, <laughs> right. uh, get married. Not sleep in a bus. <laughs> get married. Wow. Get married. Have a kid. Wow, okay. married, have a kid. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I, I sold everything you. I owned. I moved, I moved to Colorado and uh, met my future wife, and we built a house and had a kid. And for about ten years, I hardly did any music. And uh, wow, I lived in the mountains, and I kind of became a different person. So it was just uh, something I needed to do.
3: All right one one last question I have I know that you're you once lived next door to Hunter S Thompson yeah oh god what was oh. that shit like psychedelics
5: well that's that's what happened when I <laughs> when, when I when I left New York City and I kind of started my life over again moved to Colorado um, I was with my my girlfriend who later became my wife and uh, we uh, we found a little piece of property she actually found it in woody creek colorado which is um and we uh, we it was it was just a piece of land with a little cabin and uh, we wow. were going to build a house and so we i remember one day we went out there to look at it and we were standing uh, with a real estate agent and on the property and we heard a shotgun blast mm-hmm. and then on the on the roof of the cabin this metal roof we heard all the shotgun pellets you know, <laughs> like that and we're like what the hell is that and the real estate agent oh that's your neighbor hunter thompson he said don't worry he's fine you will you'll, you'll get to meet him later and i was like i said is this going to be a problem and <laughs> he said he said no 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 it's going to be all right and so we we, we ignored that and um his uh, if you if you know anything about hunter you know he had mm-hmm. that red car the landmark that he drove yes. in the field loathing mm-hmm. well, that was parked that was parked in our cabin he didn't own the property, but that property had been abandoned for years. So he just stuck his car in the little cabin. So we were going to take that cabin and convert it into an apartment where we could live while we build our house. Mm-hmm. So I kept going up and knocking on his door because he literally was right across the road. I would knock on his door and hopefully, you know, to introduce myself and say, Hey man, we got to get your car out of the cabin. And he never answered the door ever. Because he would sleep all day and stay up all night. And I would always go during the day. So So finally, I just, the keys were in the car. I put a jumper cables on it. I jumped it. I started it. I drove it up onto his lawn. I parked it directly in front of his kitchen door and I left it there. And I knew him for 25 years. He never said a word to me about it. (laughs) (laughs) He probably thought he did it. He probably uh, uh, right. did it in the middle of the night, was, night, yes yeah. where, he, where it just appeared there some, for some reason. But, Wow, you man! Know, you know, we, we used to go up to his house and uh, we used to watch Monday night football with him and the sheriff. And uh, he was, did something normal like watch football. Oh, that he was a major sports junkie. He was a huge sports fan. Um, wow. that's all his whole thing, and then uh, then we went to the funeral too, with Johnny Depp, did you know, where where they mm. shot his ashes out of the cannon and all that. We were there for that. It was wow!
0: Unreal. I didn't know they did that at the
5: funeral.
7: That is wow. Crazy. wow, wow, yeah. just who you want, uh, for a neighbor when you're trying to get away from it all, right? <laughs> <laughs> for real, he
5: was actually, you know, what though, he was actually a really good, uh, a good guy. He, he liked being Hunter Thompson, you know, he liked, mm. he liked the image, you know, he liked the hat and the cigarette holder and the motorcycle with the glass of burnt, you know, gin, but down, you know, he was a Southern gentleman. He was from Kentucky. And if he liked you and it broke all that down, he was, he was really cool and he was really okay. smart. Okay. And uh, no, it was a real experience to have him as a neighbor
3: for over 20 years. Well, we thank you for coming on the show on behalf of team Supreme, Frantigolo, Boss Bill, Sugar Steve, Laia, I'm Questlove. This is the great John Oates. Thank you very much. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who
2: is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David.